Deja Vu A novel by Ian Hocking Read by the author This novel is copyright Ian Hocking 2005 and was first published by the UKA Press. Please see www.ianhocking.com for further details. Chapter 24 Snick Uta opened her eyes. The gun had misfired, but she had no time to ponder the extraordinary unlikelihood of the event. Memories crowded her. She remembered her first kiss. It had been on tiptoe behind the local supermarket. She saw the face of her best friend at school, Katrin, and some fellow schoolchildren, and the faces of her foster parents, and a poster of Saturn, one at a fair. Spending hours learning to hula hoop, a school trip to France. Her favourite film was The Daughter-in-Law. Her foster mother's name was Frida. They had lived in Cologne. Her uncle Manny had once saved her from drowning. He had died within the year from skin cancer. A whole life returned to her. Uta Schmidt's ghostly passenger, the late art student Kate Falconer, was gone. She felt David's breath on her face. Her knowledge of him was once removed. She offered no protest as he seized her wrist and shook the gun away. It fell, dead, to the ground. He shouted more words in her face, but Uta did not understand them. "'David thinks you are a bloody idiot,' said a voice. It spoke flawless German. "'Who are you?' asked Uta. "'I am Ego, David's personal computer, but I was once in your possession. I have a message for you. Tell me.' "'Uta, you must understand that it is a message from Saskia.' The name stirred something in Uta. It carried a sisterly feeling, one of protection, and one of loss. It was comparable to the death of a twin. The message reads, Look in the envelope. Which envelope? The one you found in the West Lothian Centre. I remember, but I can't see. A tile of pale light appeared on the floor. It grew brighter until the faces of Jennifer and David appeared. They reminded Uta of timid animals on the boundary of a campfire. But with their faces, the connection between them and Uta deepened. She knew they were her friends. She knelt and shrugged off her shoulder bag. As she opened it, she noticed the dark polish on her nails. She never wore polish. Her long hair cascaded over her face. She always tied it back. In the bag was her badge, a handkerchief, some tissues, and the transparent wallet that contained the white envelope. It was fastened with a metal popper. She opened it and withdrew the envelope. Once white, it was now yellow and spotted with mould. On the front it read, Do not open this envelope. She ripped the seal and shook out a laminated ID card in the name of Saskia Brandt. On the reverse was written one word, Moonin. Moonin, repeated Uta. David, didn't Hartfield use that word? I shall act as translator, said Ego. 
She heard Ego repeating her words in English, and, as David and Jennifer replied, Ego gave the German equivalent. Saskia, David said, you have to follow Hartfield. Hartfield. The name conjured the image of a business-like man. Jobanique. It's true, said Jennifer. You are destined to follow him. When Hartfield shot at you just now, he fired point-blank, but he missed. When you tried to shoot yourself, the gun didn't fire. It couldn't fire. You built a time machine, Uta said, as the memory returned. Saskia, we have to follow Hartfield and stop him. My name is Uta, she snapped. But even as she spoke, she felt the gap in her mind. A jagged hole shaped like Kate Falconer, whose body had been dumped at sea, or in building foundations, or fed to pigs. Hartfield was getting away. He had killed Falconer to capture her ghost. That ghost wanted revenge. And revenge was something that Uta understood. Ego, she said. Can you reactivate the chip? No, it requires a password. Uta looked once more at the handwritten word on the reverse of her ID card. Try Moonin. The chip has been reactivated. Nothing happened. David said, Listen, we need to get after him. The English made sense. Hutsu, that's enough, Ego. I understand him. Saskia crouched to retrieve the gun. Three bullets remained. Let's go. You will return, the witch had said, as you have returned before. Under the guidance of his ego unit's infrared camera, Hartfield headed for the south stairwell. He was a clever man. Another person would have emptied the research centre with a fire or a bomb hoax. Hartfield's plan, like any Hartfield plan, was a lesson in parsimony. As a skilled computer programmer, who drew upon knowledge that only the owner of such a facility might have, he had instructed the main computer system to turn off the lights throughout MET4. The command was irreversible. There were no sources of light other than handheld torches. Alas, the torches would fail rather quickly because of a malfunction in the recharging process, which was also under computer control, also under Hartfield's control, also part of the plan. Parsimony. Wheels within wheels. Opening his eyes that day in 1999 following the first nano-treatment, Orza had been at his bedside, and his face was unreadable. Hartfield saw which muscle moved and where. He saw how the skin stretched and sagged into shapes. But the shapes meant little. He remembered smiles, but not happiness. It was, as he explained to his late wife, as though emotions had been the colour of his world. From that morning, the world was grey. Over the months, Hartfield's humanity was dismantled. The nanobots would not respond to calls for deactivation. They had been built to kill, and they persisted as long as they had the energy to do so. They infested his brain and cut nerves to a plan that their human creators could not begin to guess. Hartfield had felt the change deepen until he felt nothing at all. Humans became objects. The only object that was real was Hartfield. His acumen grew and transformed. 
His first murder had been easy. To his dog, he had described it as prizing jewels from the idol of a backward religion. He continued down the corridor. When he reached the first set of stairs, a young guard stepped from nowhere. On the ego computer screen, in its infrared window, his irises were solid white. Proceed to your evacuation station, sir, he said. Hartfield put the computer in his jacket. Thank you. I am on my way. The switchblade found his palm of its own accord. It gave him an idea. When the guard walked past, he jumped on his back. Hartfield heard laughter. Surely it was the guard. They fell to the ground. Hartfield wrenched his head back and cut his pipes. A minute later, the man was dead. Hartfield touched the blade to his tongue. The blood tasted like soy sauce or jewels. He put the switchblade back in its sheath. If someone discovered the body, it would scarcely change anything. There were twelve more flights of stairs. In the lull, he thought about Proctor and Brandt. It had been an interesting conversation. Advantageous. He had not planned to stop on his way down to the time machine, but he had wanted to check Frank Stone's work. The man was an idiot. His failure was unsurprising. Hartfield's prediction that David, Jennifer and Saskia would be in the computer had been a masterstroke. He savoured the reasoning once more. He had been informed of a data burst uploaded from the West Lothian Centre only seconds before it had been destroyed the previous Monday. The burst had been huge. It had to be Dr Bruce Shimoda making a clean getaway. Hartfield knew a great deal about the New World computer because he had closely followed the experimental reports. He knew that once Bruce had transferred himself inside, he would need his physical body as much as a snake needs its old skin. Hartfield tracked the data burst until it disappeared. A cold trail was no problem. There was only one place in the world where the digital Bruce could be reassembled. Hartfield owned it. And, by coincidence, Jennifer Proctor worked there too. But he never left things to chance. He had already honeyed the trap by warning Jennifer of her father's activities. Next, he had arranged for Jennifer to meet Mikey, the researcher in charge of Project Asgard. Mikey had been given clear instructions to ensure that Jennifer and Bruce met. It was all for nothing. The whole plan. He almost smiled. Hartfield had orchestrated the situation for two reasons. To gather evidence of David Proctor's complicity in the first bombing of the West Lothian Centre, and to observe a digital human. The first was born of a petty revenge the second as another solution to his illness and, sideways, a step to immortality. Both had been superseded by the time machine. All bets were off. He smiled. Hartfield would return and cure himself. There would be no blue sky research. He would never meet Proctor or any of the others. He hastened towards his own death and the rebirth of something that he, even in his psychopathic world, held above everything else the wish to be real again. David was dizzy and nauseous. The blackness was reminiscent of the 2003 bombing, although there was no panic in the air. Jennifer led the way behind the infrared eye of Ego. Saskia was in the middle and David was at the rear. Saskia bridged the gap by holding both her hands. I feel sick, 
he said. Shh, replied Saskia, as Jennifer pushed them against the wall. A guard ambled by, leading a trail of high-spirited personnel. To David's relief, they reached the stairs moments later. He found the steps problematic, even with Saskia and Jennifer holding him under the armpits. He stumbled twice. On the second occasion, he twisted his ankle. When they neared the base of the stairwell, the infrared view on Ego's screen became dark. They stopped. David whispered, Ego, what's happening? Some words appeared on the screen. System is busy. Please stand by. Ego, David said. You have no business but ours. Nothing happened. Should we wait? Jennifer asked. We could reset it. Saskia suggested. There was a beep and the infrared view reappeared. Ego said aloud, Task completed. What task? David demanded. Ego did not answer. We'll discuss this later, he said. They emerged onto the ground floor corridor. Ahead of them was an airtight door. Jennifer located a panel and pressed it with her palm. A dazzling bar of light swept beneath her hand. Shall we go in? asked David. Wait, Saskia said. She withdrew Hartfield's gun and handed Jennifer her shoulder bag. Stay here. The door began to open on a vertical hinge. Saskia ran through and dropped behind a crate. The roof was twenty metres above and embedded with daylight panels that provided diffuse illumination. Aside from a metal catwalk, the rock walls were sheer and bare. The ground was crowded with machinery. Immediately to her left and right were buildings surrounded by danger signs. They had exhaust chimneys that extended to the roof. The runway continued between them towards a walled area. Because her position was slightly elevated, she could see over the wall. There was a large, spinning arm inside. Saskia hurried forward. The sound of the electrical plants and the spinning arm masked her footsteps, but Hartfield might appear from anywhere. She ran over to the right-hand plant and sheltered against its fencing. She put her finger on the trigger. She continued her zigzag until she had reached the wall of the centrifuge. In the gap between the baffles, she saw the arm flash past. The intervals widened. Too late, said Jennifer. She was standing behind Saskia. He's already gone. Saskia lowered her gun. So what now? The control room sat upon a platform at the rear of the cavern. Through its transparent front, Saskia could see the centrifuge. At the end of its arm was a gondola. Jennifer tapped the window. You're going to sit in that. Then what will happen? We will accelerate you to a speed of 40 metres per second. That's 144 kilometres per hour. That's quite acceptable, said Saskia. I've been driven faster. David chuckled. Saskia, cars drive in a straight line. In the centrifuge, you feel like you're stuck in a permanent corner. He trailed off as he noticed a pad of pink paper. He grabbed it and began to scribble. Dad's right, Jennifer said. You'll experience almost four gravities. Saskia could feel her optimism ebbing. What does that feel like? 
It'll hurt, but you'll be wearing a pressure suit and will release you soon after. Through the wormhole. Jennifer smiled. Through the wormhole. For the next few minutes, Jennifer patrolled the rows of computer screens and prepared the machine. Occasionally, she called to her father and explained, in simple language, aspects of the procedure. Saskia remained at the front of the control room. She watched the huge arm as it began to turn. Wait a minute, said Jennifer gravely. In which year did Hartfield receive his nano-treatment? 1999, said David. This readout says he went back to 2003, four years later. Why would he return to a time after the damage was done? Why not? asked Saskia. Perhaps the new treatment can reverse the old. I don't think so, Jennifer mused. If that were the case, he would have taken the treatment now. When in 2003, Jenny? asked David. May the 14th. That's the day the West Lothian complex was bombed. Fine, said Saskia. He wants to stop the bomb. David shook his head. No, Hartfield is interested in one thing, himself. He can be cured with the correct nano-treatment. It no longer matters to him that the centre will be destroyed. Jennifer tapped the readout pensively. There's more. This date was entered into the computer only two minutes before Hartfield went through the wormhole. Meaning? asked David. Hartfield must have been in the gondola when the date was changed by a third party. He didn't intend to return to this time. I know, said David. Do you remember when we came down here from the lab? Ego stopped working briefly. He paused, listening to the voice in his ear. Yes, Ego says he hacked the time machine's computer and changed the date. He won't tell us why. This is part of my future self's plan, is it not? said Saskia. I'm afraid so. I hope you'll know what you're doing. Well, we need to keep moving, Jennifer said. She pulled a two-piece flight suit from a locker at the rear of the control room and brought it to Saskia, who accepted it apprehensively. Jennifer, can I ask you a question? Go for it. Is there no way that the machine can bring me back? The young scientist shook her head. Saskia, let me be absolutely clear. The time shot is a one-way trip. When you come back to 2023, it'll be by the usual route. She watched as Saskia struggled to make sense of the flight suit. Are you sure you want to go through with this? You sound like I have a choice. Saskia tried to smile. Perhaps you do. Uta Schmidt didn't have a choice when she was raped. Kate Falconer didn't have a choice when she was killed. What choice does Saskia Brandt have? At least you don't have to explain yourself to your authorities, like Dad and me, said Jennifer. Speaking of which, Saskia replied, you should tell me about this suit, then I can be gone. Dad? David got up from his chair, where he had been making notes on the pink pad. Hmm? Explain how the flight suit works. I'll start with the ignition sequence. David dropped his notepad and pinched the rubbery flight suit between his finger and thumb. I wish I had one of these. Saskia flexed her shoulders, 
The suit was tight. It pushed her arms back and her chest out. The legs felt like orthopedic stockings. There were rubber pads at the knees and elbows. Something called a hard hood was stowed in the collar. Along her left forearm was a computer display. It showed a schematic of the West Lothian complex. On her shoulder was a satellite transceiver. There were no Galileo satellites in 2003, so it would hack into the American military's global positioning system. David tightened the strap around her waist. Awa, Saskia said. Sorry. He patted the clasp, and it melted to a flush finish. One more thing. The red button on your sleeve will lower the refractive index of the suit to zero. What does that mean? The suit will become almost invisible. You'll look like a clear plastic bag filled with water. Treat it like instant camouflage. The suit was designed to protect and conceal pilots who've crashed behind enemy lines. I see. Right. Saskia, are you sure you want to do this? No, she replied. She smiled to show that she was joking. Half joking. Saskia, my wife is in that research centre. Was. She died in the bombing. Saskia caught his eye. You want me to give her a message? No, I just want you to make sure you don't die too. Saskia put a gloved hand to his cheek. David, you could shoot me right now and the bullet will miss. True. He smiled. Hey, come back and see us. I, for one, would appreciate a visitor in jail. Jennifer stopped her work. Are we going to prison, Dad? Honestly? I don't know. Maybe we can talk our way out. Hurry, said Jennifer. I can hear personnel returning. Saskia looked at the two of them. Jennifer had David's nose, but it was harder for her to smile. Saskia considered asking them as a favour to her to stay together, but it was a decision they had to make for themselves. Alvidesen was all she could say. Wait, David said. I almost forgot. He passed her his pink notepad. It was covered with diagrams, equations, arrows and blocks of handwritten text. These are the instructions for the computer-controlled glider. They should work with any modern computer. Everything you need is written here. Of course, you could find this information anywhere, but I prefer it if you use mine. I know it'll work. They're the same sheets from the church in Scotland. I saw them just before you busted me out. Saskia unzipped the mat pocket on her thigh and pushed the papers inside. You're talking about something that's 20 years ahead of me. I hope I don't forget. You've got 20 years to remember, said David. Jennifer shouted, Quickly, Saskia. She waved and left the control room. As she jogged down the runway, she heard raised voices behind her and began to sprint. She slipped through a gap between the baffles and skipped up the steps to the gondola. It rocked as she clambered inside. The door closed automatically. She heard Jennifer's voice in her ear. Saskia, we have to start immediately. Whatever you do, don't turn your head to either side or you'll be sick. Go, Saskia replied. The motor of the centrifuge wailed like a jet. The gondola lurched forward and she fell onto the watery seat. 
Through tiny windows, she watched the world tilt. She tapped her wrist computer, and the hard hood closed over her head. Its arch-like sections blended to form a seamless, transparent bowl. The motor noise muted. Are you reading me? asked Jennifer. You're at two G's. Reading you, yes. Her jaw ached and her cheeks felt baggy. Her head pressed against the hood. Three G's, David said. Remember, when you land, put your feet together and roll. Reading you. She struggled to take a full breath. Four G's. Still reading you. Her vision began to lose colour. The ceiling of the gondola blurred. Saskia, said Jennifer, we're sending you back one half hour before Hartfield. That is, 2.34pm on the afternoon of May 14th, 2003. Reading you. Saskia began to lose consciousness. David's voice. No, no, that's... 